Hey, all you cool cats and kittens, welcome back to the Politipop Podcast. This week, we're releasing a never-before-listened-to episode from The Vault, Black Panther. Released in 2018, this MCU film was the first major Marvel movie to have a person of color as the lead and a majority black cast. Returning from the Get Out episode is my friend Josh, who helps us delve into the symbolism, story, and overall coolness of the film. If you haven't seen it yet, I suggest you do so before listening, because there are detailed plot spoilers. In the meantime, grind up your favorite heart-shaped herb and enjoy. Three, two, one. Welcome to the Politipop Podcast, the podcast where we take your favorite pop culture media and read between the lines discussing the social and political themes within. I am your host, Mike Booch, and I'm sitting here today with returning guest and favorite, Mr. Josh. How you doing today, sir? Pretty good, Mike. Wow, I get favorite. This is nice. Good to be here, man. All right. Awesome. Well, it's, uh, it's always good to have you on. This makes you, I think, the only returning uh, co-host. Really? Yeah, I did. Uh, I did three episodes straight with Joe, but those were kind of like, like cut up into three episodes. Oh, it was one sitting, but it was made into three separate yeah. episodes. Well, actually, I think it was it was two sittings made into three. Anyway, the technical aspect <laughs> isn't important. You're returning. You were with me uh, for episode eight, Get Out. And if anyone hasn't listened to that episode yet, I would suggest that you do. It's a good time. Yes, it was uh, super fun to do. I loved uh, being able to discuss those things with you. Now, the Get Out episode, I had you on because you would be able to relate that movie to your own experiences as a black American male. Yes. Okay, so I was basically the whole time just saying, oh, is this right? Is this right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Do black people look at this this way? Yeah, exactly, and I was getting your input there. Now, I feel bad because I'm having you on for the Black Panther episode, which uh, for me, I feel has been long overdue. It came out last year, but it's kind of relevant now as well because... Most definitely, especially seeing how they're actually showing it in a select few cinemas in the country because it's Black History Month. Absolutely. And it's actually getting uh, Oscar nominations as well. I believe six. Yes. Yes. Six Oscar nominations, which we'll go over in a little bit. Now, I will have you on future episodes for things that aren't black centric. Okay. You know, yeah, I was wondering if we were supposed to do Luke Cage as well. That would have hit the trifecta right there. (laughs) Maybe we still will. (laughs) You get like you get like a punch card. You get me on for three black people episodes and then you get like a free haircut at a black barbershop or something. Exactly. I'm going to have to make that the deal. Uh, (laughs) But you're into other things that aren't just uh, black things. Contrary Uh, to popular belief. Yeah. Contrary to popular belief. But that is why we're having you on this episode in in particular. Uh, I obviously have my own thoughts about it, my own observations. I want to get your take on it. And we'll just delve right into this bad boy. Sounds good. Yes. Into Black Panther. Now, if we're looking at it uh, by the numbers, Black Panther still ranks as the ninth highest box office of all time. Yes. And it looks like it's totaled so far 1.344 billion US dollars. It's quite a bit of money. I believe it was over 700 million domestic 
and the other 600 million was globally. Wow. So it wasn't something that spoke to just American audiences. Not at all. That touched audiences all over the world. It's actually, I believe, now still the third highest grossing Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. And it's also the highest grossing film for a black director. Uh, Ryan Coogler. Ryan Coogler, who also directed Creed, Fruitvale Station, and I believe also Creed Two. Yes, yes, he did. Now let's talk about these award nominations. It was nominated for six different Oscars, but in addition to that, it's won a variety of awards before then in a lot of different film festivals and uh, and award shows. Uh, it uh, received a lot of Grammy nominations, obviously cleaned up house at the Teen Choice Awards, and uh, won the SAG Award, Screen Actors Guild Award for The Uninitiated, uh, for out- outstanding performance by cast in a motion picture. As far as the Oscars goes, Best Achievement in Music Written for Motion Pictures, both original score and original song. Now, is the song uh, Stars, All the Stars? All the Stars, yeah. That was the same song that was nominated in a couple categories at the Grammys. And I also believe at the Grammys, the soundtrack, the Black Panther soundtrack, was actually won a Grammy. Oh, it did? Yes. That's awesome. And uh, we also have Best Motion Picture, we have Best Costume Design, we have Best Production Design, and we have Sound Editing. Okay. Well, I mean, I I feel like those are fitting categories for the Oscars, honestly. Absolutely. Now, there has been a lot of talk circulating the internet, which it doesn't mean that the talk has been done by reputable people. But I know because I'm in all the comic book groups and I follow the comic book pages, seeing a bunch of people who just say that uh, this being the first superhero movie uh, to get, I think, the nomination for Best Picture is pandering because it's all about political correctness and they're just giving it to the film because it's a majority black cast and stuff like that. Well, I mean, the movie, I'm sure you can find plenty of people that subscribe to that notion and who's to say that maybe that didn't have anything to do with the nomination at all but i would like to believe that as a movie just given what it stood for what it represented the impact that it had worldwide that it deserved the nomination it received well we're actually going to talk about the impact and what it represented and i think that's going to be what this whole episode is about but personally Do you feel that it's going to win any of these awards, namely Best Motion Picture of the Year? Um, Well, I don't really remember what the other nominations were for Best Motion Picture. I actually do. The nominees for Best Motion Picture for the 2019 Oscars are Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Black Panther, Black Klansman, Green Book, Vice... A Star is Born, and Roma, that uh, what looks like a pretentious Netflix movie. <laughs> to be fair, I haven't seen it. <laughs> I, I hadn't even heard of Roma, honestly. Every time you open up Netflix, it would just be Roma, and it would be this pic- like this artistic picture in black and white, and oh, it was this Netflix okay. original movie. It's one of those, like, you have to be like a real thespian to kind of be like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm very cultured. I know about this type of stuff. Yeah, well, well I think it might be just that it's trying to be that from the get-go. It's not something that, like, fell into it, you so know? maybe they're pandering. Yeah, uh, maybe. Maybe they are pandering. 
Um, so yeah, I haven't actually seen Black Klansman. I haven't seen Green Book. I've I know seen Green Book. Uh, thoughts? Um, we we enjoyed the Green Book. Best um, Picture enjoyed. That one's tough <laughs> though, because the thing is, looking at it also just from uh, what is the Hollywood Foreign Press that they vote on what the best one is, trying to take into account what the demographic of the Hollywood Foreign Press is and how these things usually go. Oftentimes, like how often do you hear about a Marvel comic book movie being nominated for best motion picture? How often does a superhero movie get nominated for best motion picture? So it's definitely the underdog, I would say. Um, I think if it were to win, I think it'd be deserved and it would be crazy. But I don't think it's going to win because, I mean, I could see the Green Book winning. I could see A Star is Born winning. Um, I heard interesting things about Vice, although I didn't see it. Yeah, Vice, the Dick Cheney movie, yeah, the biopic, I could, right? I can even see Black Klansman winning because apparently they got rave reviews. Yeah. I mean, I still haven't seen Black Klansman. I still need to see that, too. Well, uh, I've also seen people complaining, saying that uh, Infinity War should have been the first superhero movie. Like, of 2018, that should have been the one. But Infinity War... For me, Black Panther's a stronger film. Infinity War is much more fun. Yeah. But but also it doesn't really have as many character moments for me because there was a lot they had to get done in that movie. It's a huge ensemble cast. Yeah. They had to juggle uh characters from a multitude of different movies and somehow tie that in all together while at the same time giving you enough backstory on Thanos. Because essentially Infinity War was Thanos's diary. Yeah, it was Thanos's movie, absolutely. Which is which is fine. It makes sense because I mean, you need to know all you can about this character to really understand what the driving force behind his ambition is. I mean, out of out of those movies, I saw Bohemian Rhapsody this week. I wasn't super impressed by it. Oh, I still haven't seen that. If movie, I'm being, it's 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 good, but <laughs> I would rather watch a documentary about Freddie Mercury. Well, because then that movie they're going to take artistic liberties and it's they not took quite a few, yeah, and it was accurate. rushed. Um, but this isn't the Bohemian Rhapsody podcast. A Star Is Born, maybe. I I don't know. I don't see Black Panther winning Best Picture, but I do think that on what it was nominated for, the music, the original score, is breathtaking. Most definitely, and the costume design is beautiful. Yeah, there's to me. I don't know what the other nominees for that category were. But just the colors, the patterns, just like how the costume design was so immersed in that culture. I don't see how it doesn't win for that category. Yeah. Now, I do think that, I don't know, a lot of people have felt threatened by this film for some reason. And I think that that's why whenever, oh, it was nominated for this, or even that it won the SAG Award for um, Best Ensemble Cast... Like nobody, wa- your average person does not watch the SAG Awards. I don't think any your average person, unless you are a member of SAG, <laughs> or or a film critic or a writer or you know journalist, has actually paid attention to the SAG Awards. They just see the headlines and they go, "Oh, this is pandering." Blah blah blah. But I made a tweet a little while ago about like, "Oh, did you think that Apollo thirteen was pandering because it won the same award? Uh, do you think that was pandering to a majority white cast?" Were you complaining when um, Hidden Pictures, no, Hidden Figures, uh, the NASA movie, won that award as well? You know, you didn't see that. There are a number of of films that have previously 
won that award that I didn't see. To be fair, a lot of people were didn't have access to the internet <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I mean, I think it was selective outrage, honestly. I, I just think that, to your point, there are a lot of people who do seem threatened by something that's, uh, I guess, a little more Afrocentric, and they think by proxy that that automatically means that it's a war on whatever's Eurocentric or that it's making whatever's more Eurocentric out to be bad when it's really funny just that for years the exact opposite was what was going on. And at no point was anyone like, oh, they're pandering to the white crowd. Yeah, that's never (laughs) a sentence I've ever heard. This cast is majority white. Oh, my God. You know, they're trying to make a political statement because they have all these white people in here. Those damn social justice warriors. Yeah, the movies that have won that award previously, you have Apollo 13, Get Shorty, The Full Monty, Shakespeare in Love, Traffic, Chicago, Return of the King, Lord of the Rings movie, No Country for Old Men, American Hustle. And those were all majority white cast films. So super white people movies, gotcha. The whitest. And at no point. (laughs) (laughs) Directed by (laughs) Jaramanes. Exactly. Uh, And at no point was anyone like, oh, you're pandering to the white crowd. Because the thing is, whiteness in American films is the norm. Yep. Even when movies first started out, black people in those movies were white people in blackface. Yep. And uh, yeah, because that's when you have the whole thing with minstrel shows coming up. But blackface actually predates the minstrel show and has outlasted it also. Uh, Yes, as we as we know. So so let's move into that. Let's segue into that. We have in a in a country where and I shouldn't say in a country in a world, really, because there are a lot of European films also that are majority white. There is a historical problem with actors of color getting jobs in the UK which is why Idris Elba is ours now <laughs> uh, Idris Elba is an American star <laughs> and David Oyelowo is an American star like they really speak in their native accents <laughs> yeah e- exactly uh, so so what does it mean to somebody who is of color and always sees white people in their movies and TV shows to to have Black Panther come out? Well, first off, uh, I'm going to say, while I might not be able to speak for everyone, honestly, I think the cultural impact of this movie will be felt for like years to come, honestly. But um, for me personally, and then I can get to it on maybe a more generalized scale, Mm -hmm. personally, to see a movie like this being advertised, the press runs, the ensemble cast that was put together for this, it was just like, there was like a sense of belonging that was there. There was a sense of pride. There was a sense of home. There was a sense of just kind of, I can look on that screen and any given character on that screen could be me at any point. I didn't have to search for him. They weren't some supporting character. They weren't somebody that was dumbed down or killed off or made to just be insignificant. Like everybody there felt like they were a prominent character. They were there for a reason. It made sense. And it was just great to see. And I guess just on a more general scale, you know, there's going to be little black boys and girls that are going to see the film that have seen the film. 
and they have their hero, you know, whereas, you know, plenty of, you know, little white boys and girls had like, you know, whether it was Natasha Romanoff or Captain America or, or Iron Man or Thor or, you know, Clint. <laughs> Hawkeye. <laughs> yeah, Hawkeye or or anyone. Or uh, Superman. Batman, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Hal Jordan version, even Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, uh, Guy Gardner. Uh, if you, And those are deep cuts, by the way. Yeah, Aquaman. Uh, up until the recent movie. Spider-Man. Exactly. Because I have seen people who are who have grown up with heroes that represent them. And it might not be representing in the sense that if it's a white hero, it represents only white people. That's not necessarily that, and that's a little bit short-sighted to look at. And just in the same way that Black Panther doesn't only represent black people. There's a lot that people from multiple cultures can glean from this film. But I do remember when I was a kid, father is a huge comic book nerd. He's noticeably darker than I am. If we wanted to dress up as Batman and Robin for Halloween, even in my little kid head, I thought Batman's white, though. Exactly. And he would dress up, you know, he would have the Batman mask on. Or even just thinking about it this way, if I wanted to be Captain America, Thor, Batman, Superman, any of those characters, I'd have to be the black Superman, the black Captain America, the black Batman, so on and so forth. Where it's really interesting because uh, let's take Captain America just for, for argument's sake. Mm-hmm. Um Anybody could be Captain America, man or woman, anyone. Him being white has nothing to do with him as Captain America. It's a coincidence. It's a coincidence. Captain America is a title. It's happenstance, honestly. That could have been any kid in, what, nineteen late 1930s Brooklyn that was enlisting? Yeah. Because black people were in World War II, guys. So <laughs> What? Crazy, right? I don't believe it. Not for us. Defended this country? (laughs) (laughs) That could have been anyone. Uh, I also saw uh, someone say, have you ever seen those bullshit stories that people put on Facebook when it's like, oh, my daughter was three years old and she said this entire paragraph to me uh, about (laughs) this. Wow. You know, if a kid can't, well, you know, those bullshit stories. This guy had one that... uh, you know, he, what was it? I think it was actually at the end of Into the Spider-Verse. And this little boy supposedly talked to his father and said, oh, why are, you know, why are these, um, why are these black people uh, crying after seeing Miles Morales on screen and stuff like that? And the father said, because they're so small-minded that they can't connect with a character that doesn't look like them. Which, A, did not happen. <laughs> no offense to children. <laughs> you know, I just I'm just not sure that they would have that cultural wherewithal necessarily. No. To be like, oh, what does this mean? Uh, because you've connected with characters who aren't black Most your entire life. Right? That's all I have. Yeah. <laughs> right? Fair enough. But I mean, you gotta look at it this way. Um, you can relate to just about any character on a human level. It's just, it's nice to see someone that looks like you on screen. 
that's a prominent character that's being represented in a way that's not stereotypical. Amen. You know, yeah. I can tell you this from experience, from talking to other people, as great as 12 Years a Slave was or Jang on Chain was, I don't want every movie <laughs> that has a predominantly black cast to be niggas is just getting beat half the movie. <laughs> I just it doesn't always have it. to be slavery. Right. It's like why are the only prominent movies us just getting the shit beat out of us or we always have to just overcome the the white man's oppression in every goddamn movie. <laughs> like after a while it's just kinda like, bro, can can we like like doctors or something? Can we can we figure that out? Cause now- <laughs> like it was like Black Panther was refreshing. <laughs> like at least he was getting beat by another brother. Like you know what I mean? It was all. <laughs> but what about Panther on Panther crime? That's, that's well, that I mean, one. no one's sitting there talking about Jaguar on Jaguar crime. That's right. That's it. Now, what about Blade? What about Spawn? What about Blank Man? What about uh, Meteor Man? What about those arguments? What about Hancock? Aren't they the first black superheroes in cinema? Let me tell you this right now. Blank Man, there's a very select few people that actually remember that movie. And I can bet you most of them are black. Tell you that right now. Well, I've yet to meet a white person, maybe other than you, who I don't even consider to be white. Appreciate it. about Blank Man? Well, they remember Blank Man when Black Panther came out. All of a sudden. Because, yeah, all of a sudden, because it became the argument against, listen, this isn't the first black superhero. How come you guys didn't enjoy the counter argument? Wasn't really, it was just simply, and I say that with emphasis because it's not like this is something that's been brewing in the white community for decades now. <laughs> They've been waiting for Blank Man to get his chance. <laughs> God damn it, we got him. Complain <laughs> about, you know, <laughs> the lack of inclusivity and diversity. What about Blank Man? That's what I've been saying this whole, it's always been Blank Man, <laughs> my Blank Man poster and all that. Um, What about Blade? I'll take the other examples out because Blade was actually a solid movie. Blade was solid, right? But at the end of the day, I think the difference with between Blade and Black Panther was that when Blade came out, no one knew he was based off of a Marvel comic book character. Very true. Watching the movie, right? Very true. And if anything, it definitely was not advertised like a Marvel movie, right? That was vampire slash them kind of like you know action that was an action rated r movie action rated r movie where you've seen people get blood sucked out of them getting limbs severed it was good shit right but it didn't have that feel it it, there's just a difference between how blade was I guess presented versus how Black Panther. And the reason all the cops shot at Blade was because he was a terrorist who broke into a hospital. Maybe not because he was black. Like Blade happened to be black by coincidence. And yeah. Wesley Snipes was awesome as Blade. The original Almost character definitely. Blade is black. But for all intents and purposes, anybody could be Blade. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you're saying it's about representation. And th- this movie doesn't shy away from that representation it actually leans into it more because it doesn't just boast a majority black cast it also in its marketing was very forthcoming about what it was made to represent oh yeah uh ryan coogler uh at the helm first and foremost uh directed fruitvale station yes and fruitvale station has a lot of uh tones about racial injustice yes Fruitville Station 
is a story that follows the, I believe, last 24 hours of Oscar Grant's life. Oscar Grant was a black man uh, on the train. I think he was heading somewhere, had a situation involving a police officer, and I believe he ultimately ends up getting shot, and he dies because of it. So now, in between when the movie starts and the movie ends, I guess you see how he was as a person, you know, his daughter, his girlfriend. You see him. They were showing him to be a person, and uh, they were trying to explore those avenues in that kind of a film because too often, I think, in situations like that that occur in real life, the person in question, the unarmed black person, whoever it may be, they're dehumanized in these situations. And I think that movie took a very intentional uh, step to show you him as a person. So I think you were to begin to care about him in that way, like what they do in plenty of movies. But I think that was one of the the points that they were trying to come across because it, he wasn't some dude that got shot for doing something he shouldn't have been doing. He was a boyfriend, a dad, a son, someone's friend that lost his life in a situation to where he probably didn't have to. And too often that is the case when uh, those events do occur. It's never father of two shot dead or, you know, uh, or uh, sister or, you know, brother, blah, 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 whatever. It's always, what did they do in their past? Okay, oh, yeah. they, dealt, they, they dealt some pot once in a while. So drug dealer, former drug dealer, shot down, blah, blah, blah. It's always those situations to where they come to find the most information. But then you have other situations to where somebody gets shot and they didn't have any weapon on them and they're not sure. If it's a hate crime, especially when all signs kind of point to it. It's like, yeah. it's like, oh, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, you know, looks like a duck, it's got to be a fish. Even in the in the case of the Texas bombings, it was people of color notoriously who were targeted. And before they knew who the suspect was, they said that it was possible that one of the people who had died could have blown themselves up. <laughs> they, were, they were like oh like victim of bombing might have been responsible for the bomb so yeah so this so this movie uh from the get-go is very forthcoming about its its message and what it represents the first poster we saw was um t'challa sitting on that wicker throne reminiscent of huey p newton one of the uh founding members of the black panther party the music in the trailer by Run the Jewels, the hook is uh, step into the spotlight, right? It's all about not hiding anymore. It's all about coming to the forefront. So we know what this film means on a cultural level. We know uh, now the impact that it's had uh, for the box office and everything. And, uh, and f you know, right on the, on the feet of Captain Marvel which is coming out soon, we'll be seeing there's been a lot of hype about that as well. Oh, the, now it's not the first uh, solo female superhero movie. Wonder Woman beat it to the punch. But Captain Marvel, I think, has the potential to actually be good. Because <laughs> Wonder Woman was good, but I think Captain Marvel has the potential to be better because it is an MCU film. It has that behind it. That's very true. But even then, you've seen a lot of people that are just, oh, you know, we don't like uh, Carol Danvers as Captain Marvel. My Captain Marvel was a man. Oh, the real Captain Marvel is Shazam. Oh, um, you know, Brie Larson said she didn't want this movie to be all about 
white males, so I'm not going to see it because now they feel attacked all of a sudden. So, you know, so this movie also is very forthcoming, and we see in the, the trailers and the coming promotions, uh, she says, I'm getting tired of being told what to do, and, and her whole thing is about rising, and they had this beautiful graphic where it's like, see what makes her, and then it fades in the, a hero. You know, so 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 this is not shying away from it, and and we'll see how it goes. A, a lot of people don't think Brie Larson's the right person to head it. Uh, I have read the this new version of Captain Marvel that they're putting into the film. I'm a fan. I've known people that aren't a mutual friend or former friend of ours uh, who has a lot to say about these things. He said that this new version of Captain Marvel is too mouthy, too obnoxious. She doesn't listen to a lot of the rules. I've seen that. But the best heroes are that person. But it's interesting that you say that because depending on who exhibits those qualities, they're looked at differently. So uh, let's say Captain America Civil War. (laughs) Yeah. He was breaking rules all throughout that movie. That was the whole movie and he was seen as the hero for it. Hero. Because I was firmly in the corner of the anti-registration. Yes. I was I was just like, look, man, you're putting people's lives at risk here because it's not just the hero's life that's in jeopardy. It's anybody that's associated, a known associate, is also in jeopardy. And then there are certain things that they wouldn't be able to accomplish within the confines of the law. And I understand that. And let's be honest here. The Avengers... The group and the members individually have definitely broken rules yeah. in their respective films. That's what their characters do. Well, from the get-go, that was Tony Stark. Yeah. Super mouthy, drunk, Obnoxious, womanizing. Arrogant. Yeah. Uh, alcoholic. Yeah. Broke all the rules. Even, you know, the fought against the Air Force, you know, when they tried to get him to turn in the suit. Everything from the beginning. Now, would you classify Tony Stark or Steve Rogers for these attitudes they have as um how do i put it lightly mouthy bitches who don't know their place would you ever <laughs> maybe tony a little bit maybe <laughs> <laughs> tony is a mouthy bitch you know but commonly that's not something that would be associated with them no um okay so so let's get back to black panther we start from the beginning there are clear themes especially if you're looking for them relating wakanda to the current america yes and Maybe even historically America as well. So the first thing I noticed was uh, T'Challa comes back. He's getting ready for his big ceremony. And his sister Shuri, who awesome character. A lot of people in this uh, film really stole stole the film, stole the show. Uh, she's one of them. She's the head of science in Wakanda. And she says that she's going to be able to make upgrades to his suit. And so he's saying, well, it already works perfectly. And she says, just because something works doesn't mean it can't be improved. Haven't I taught you anything? Exactly. So so this, to me, was all about how that there are certain systems in place that have worked so far. They haven't worked great, but they've worked so far. And maybe for a particular group of people, even. Let's, let's just use our country, the United States of America, as an, as an example. Just because... We're all here and some people are still thriving does not mean that things can't be improved. Exactly. Which I think is the common sentiment, right? Whenever you say anything criticizing this country, people go, well, if you don't like it, leave. Yeah, that's always it because I think they're definitely 
of the mindset of if it's not broken, don't fix it. And this also applies to the fictional uh, nation of Wakanda as well. Yes. Wakanda has been working great for Wakandans. They for generations. <laughs> yes, it's they been awesome for them. <laughs> yes, as soon as all the terrible things in the world started happening, they turned their eyes and concentrated on themselves, and things have been going really, really well for themselves until T'Challa steps out and gets a taste of the real world. Yes. In Civil War, his father dies, and then he's like, what? He's like, I didn't realize shit was this real out here. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, even when you're watching the very beginning and you have Eric asking his father, Njobu, tell me a story, Baba. And he's like, about what? Home. So then you get this brief but very interesting backstory about Wakanda as a nation and how it started where the meteorite of vibranium hits Africa, which is how any great nation is started, by the way. Just some giant meteorite leaning yeah. into the atmosphere. I mean, every, everyone knows that, yeah, of course. Typical, right? Standard. So he goes on to talk about how there are these five different tribes and how they're constantly at war until one person, a shaman, finds the heart-shaped herb, becomes the first Black Panther, unites all five tribes, and pretty much starts Wakanda after that. So, well, I mean, the Jabari tribe, they end up leaving, but that's... That's know, a whole other thing. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. But you, you, they, were go, they go on to explain that while Wakanda was advancing on the technological realm and just as a country and as they continued to isolate themselves, all the other world events were going on around them and they stayed out of it. So you're seeing... Like almost like a montage almost Absolutely. of all the other great world events from slavery to World War II and beyond. And throughout this entire period, Wakanda still Wakanda. They're protected, unknown. So and I think that was a very interesting way to begin that movie. Absolutely. And most importantly, they are united. So there is that theme there. I think there's this whole theme of what a country could and should be. Yes. It could be isolated. Absolutely. And it could also be united. And when it is united, that's when these technological wonders come into place. That's when you get flying spaceships and amazing medicine and everything else. But that being said, Wakanda still does interact with the outside world. Yes. Uh, we know that uh, T'Challa's father, T'Chaka, he's gone out. He's become a diplomat. Yeah. So he's been aware of all this stuff that's been happening. And he's hidden Wakanda from everyone. Well, he's kept the tradition, I should say. It wasn't his choice. He's kept the tradition of hiding Wakanda from the outside world. But it was his choice to make sure that it remained, I don't want to say hidden, but there was this veil. And he kept up with the lie that has been being told for generations about what Wakanda is. So when you have the scene, and I might be jumping ahead a little bit, where they have Claw and Everett, the CIA agent, is talking to Claw, and he's like, what do you know about Wakanda? He goes, oh, it's a third world country. Textiles, things of that nature. Meanwhile, it's this mecca of technology and just modernity. But they have no idea. So 
Tataka had been keeping up the lie that he was probably taught to keep up with since he was a child. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, when you think about any world leader, I don't think you can blame a world leader for what happens before them. Okay. But if they get into that place, they can still, I, I think they can be blamed for keeping those same systems in place. Yes. For not trying to change anything. And that's what T'Challa's whole story is about. His story is about will he keep with tradition or will he break it? Now, we, we go away from T'Challa for a bit. We end up finding uh, Eric Stevens. Kill. Stevens. Yes. <laughs> Eric Stevens, codenamed Killmonger. There's not really much to go into here, I don't think, unless you have a personal story. But the first thing that happens is he is in this museum and he knows from the get-go <laughs> that security is following him around. Yes. And that's not something they shy away from. As a matter of fact, he could have gone into that museum wearing anything. He could have gone in wearing a suit, and maybe they would have looked at him differently. Maybe if he had a shorter haircut, they would have looked at him differently. But no. He goes in there. He's got, you know, he's got his, uh, what kind of hairstyle? Dreads? Braids? What was yeah, it? It, was, it was dreads. I mean, you know, for the most part. But... Look at him this way. It he doesn't matter what he was wearing. He was aware of the fact that he was being watched by security. Meanwhile, it, it's this black dude looking at African artifacts. To me, the irony is just amazing in this scenario because it's it's a it's a, an African American man looking at African artifacts, and you have a bunch of white security guards following this dude. Is he gonna steal them and bring them home? Or, or is he, like, what is he going to do with them? And it's like at the point where the curator is there, the very cultured curator there, who he's like, oh, uh, tell me about this one. You know, tell me about this one. Now tell me about this one. And then, of course, her being as pretentious as any person who doesn't watch what's being put in their coffee at whatever time in the morning. And uh, uh, he'd said it, it was from a specific century by a certain group. And he goes, nah. It's from Wakanda. It's vibranium. And she's like, I beg your pardon? <laughs> like, he couldn't possibly know about mm -hmm. his own ancestry at all. I also like how part of that schooling was him saying to her, oh, your ancestors have, have stolen this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how they stole everything. You know, do you think that they took it fairly? Do you think that they paid a fair price for it? Yeah. No. I, once again, going back to the way old things were done. We can't be held responsible for that, uh, for anything our ancestors have done. But I feel it's our responsibility to be aware of it and to do better. So when you do think of the argument that that is, uh, well, listen, it wasn't me exactly who who did this stuff back during the civil rights movement. It was white people, but it wasn't me, you know, or it wasn't me exactly who was responsible for slavery. Like, why are you blaming me? Blah, 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 all this other stuff. But the thing is, uh, you have to be aware of history because these traditions do trickle down and are responsible for a lot of different things today. Because recently we've seen matters of Confederate statues and stuff like that being removed. And people are saying, oh, that shouldn't be removed, blah, 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 because that's history. But And it's tradition to keep those things there. Yeah. Let's maybe break tradition. In doing so, let's maybe be aware of what was done and not shy away from it. Yeah. In textbooks, call it slavery. Don't call it, what was it, paid workers? Yeah. It's like, what were they being paid with? 
<laughs> yeah, I don't think you can take that to the bank that they couldn't even go to because they couldn't leave the plantation. But anyways, this yeah. is not a slavery podcast, but it, it was interesting. To That's me my when... other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it's um because, I mean, when it comes to those statues that were erected, especially after the Civil War and everything, it's like, hey, you guys did lose. So if those aren't like the biggest participation trophies I've ever seen, <laughs> I don't know what is. Absolutely. Like, yeah, it's history. Yeah, it's history. So put it in a museum with all the other historical shit. Yeah. What's the big deal? Well, the best part is a good majority of those statues weren't built right after the Civil no. War. A lot of them were built like within the last 60, 70 yeah. years. They're built during the Civil Rights Movement for a reason. So guess what? We hate you and this is why. <laughs> and we want you to look at this ugly statue every day so that you never forget. This argument that makes me laugh is the whole, well, if you don't remember history, then you're destined to repeat it. I don't keep pictures of my ex-girlfriend up all around the place to make sure I don't date her again. Same I know. Here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> it's like, I don't need to have a video of me sticking a fork in a socket for me to realize, maybe I shouldn't do that again. Yeah. Or erect a, a monument to it. <laughs> So, so after the situation with Killmonger, we get a brief intro to him. We go straight to Challenge Day. Challenge Day. This, I think, was the first moment that I started crying because Mark Bernardin, who I told you he's an amazing writer, uh, he's also a screenwriter, co-host of Fat Man Beyond with Kevin Smith, he spoke about what this meant, that Wakanda is a country for those who have no country. Because the lineage has been erased. You can trace someone who's Irish and they'll be like, oh, well, I go back, you know, so many generations to this town in Ireland. Or like, oh, I go back to Italy, this many generations to this exact town. I was hanging out with Kenny yesterday and he said that he knows where his grandmother's side grew up in Italy. Wow. That you can go back to that exact town where her family is from before they came to the United States. But for black people, that's not necessarily the case. You took an ancestry test within the past year. Yes. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so uh, that's something I've been wanting to do for a while uh, because I have no idea where my lineage lies or I didn't know. So we take this uh, test, you know, Get your DNA to check the results. Oddly enough, uh, between me and Sam, I got my results back first. Huh. Um, <laughs> which I think is pretty hilarious, but, you know. Well, whose were easier to track is the question. <laughs> you know, I would have thought she would have gotten hers way before I got mine. but uh, That's what I would have thought. Not the case, which I thought was kind of funny. So 86.6% of my ancestry is in Africa. Wow. Uh, we have a 12.4% that is European. Which, uh, <laughs> those damn colonizers. <clears throat> uh, and 1%, which was probably the funniest, uh, Asia. Huh. Well, Asia is a huge continent. True, but specifically East Asia. And uh, we're talking Inuit. That 86% that goes to Africa, what does it say? Does it just say Africa? No, um, there's a breakdown. So we have West Africa, Central, and East Africa, right? <laughs> Very descriptive. Um, <laughs> within 
<laughs> it gets better. Okay. In West Africa. All right. There's Nigerian, Sierra Leonean, West African. But apparently I am like 61% Nigerian. Central Africa, there's Central African. Of course. Uh, East Africa, there's Kenyan. That might explain why I run fast. So You said it. <laughs> Your words. Your words, not mine. And then, interestingly enough, with Europe, we have North and West Europe, and we have East Europe. So with the North and West Europe, there's Irish, Scottish, and Welsh. And with the East Europe, there's Baltic and East European. So uh, the Welsh specifically makes sense to me because apparently Williams is a Welsh surname. So that actually makes sense. Hmm. So you actually have fairly comprehensive, but even then Nigeria is its own country. Yes. Right. You can't go to the specific town where that part originates from. I could not tell you what street or what part of Nigeria my ancestors yeah. came from. So there's a lot that you have more information about, but there's a lot of information that's also lost. Yes. And you're not the only one. That's that's the case that uh, Mark Bernardin made for Wakanda, and I'd never even thought of it, that Wakanda is that imaginary nation. That we're all from. Yes, that we're all from. And this is why I started to cry, because I thought this is what it could have been. Had no one ever left that continent or was taken from that continent or traded from that continent, because I know there's a huge argument that, well, they sold themselves, you know, a lot of people sold from, you know, whatever. If nobody was ever... Honestly, a very small amount of people that did that versus the overwhelming majority that was just straight up taken. And neither is right. That doesn't make it... (laughs) (laughs) It's like, well, they did it too. Yeah. (laughs) It's like... What's your point? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if they never would have taken, this is what that culture could have been. Just an amalgamation of different tribes. Yeah. All coming together in the same area. And just you could feel the the tradition, the culture, like the togetherness just in that scene. That is one of my favorite scenes in that movie because – um, you have all the like the border tribe, the merchant tribe, and everything else. All the, they're all there, all dressed for battle, all ready to go. But because they all have so much respect for King T'Chaka and for the prospects of T'Challa, you know, they didn't want to challenge because they figured the throne was in the right hands. Yeah, and that's you know that's what that's that unity that unity that we were talking about before, right? Yeah. So it was just a it was a beautiful scene. And then not to mention just the colors and the landscape and how they were all coming in together it's on ships, beautiful. dancing and singing. And it was just, although they're about to go into a battle potentially, right? Yeah, but, but also it is, it's a coronation. Yes. You know? it, it's almost like a coming of age yeah. scene in, in a sense because you got to remember it was only a week before he lost his dad. Yeah. But in that scene, there a week, was such a... A week after. Yeah. Sorry. They're saying that the week before. Yeah, the it? week before he right. lost his dad. So, like, there was such a sense, like, of what you were saying, unity and a bond there amongst these tribes, even in that scene where they could have potentially been vying for the throne. But it was just, that was so well done. This was an ultimate moment for a power grab, and that's not what they needed there. 
Yeah. You know, that's not what they wanted. And it, it really was, it, it was beautiful. Everybody was in their traditional Wakandan clothes and there was no, no shying away from that at all. No, their tradition actually took, I think, the forefront of that scene. And I think the interesting thing was when we entered the Jabari tribe, we had almost a duality of tradition there. We have tradition uh, being used at its fullest extent, but it's like just for the full benefit of everyone. And then we have tradition and how it could maybe hinder a person. Because if you take a look at the Jabari tribe, they come in, they interrupted that unity. They interrupted that solidarity amongst all the other tribes that were there. They came through like that drunk uncle at like a barbecue <laughs> ready to fuck some shit up. Like they, they weren't having it. So, but that also, that part of the scene, this is why it's one of my favorite scenes. They just come in just like all this pride, all this power. You could feel it coming from them. And their leader, Mbaku, like he made it a point to say that they are very much so steeped in their tradition, which kind of leans more toward their old ways. So they're not necessarily up with the times as far as technology is concerned. And they all, they even feel as though with their modernity and their advancements in technology, they're scoffing at tradition. Especially when he singled out, you know, Sherry. And yes, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, they let the, you know, a child handle the scientific advancements and she scoffs at tradition and everything. And that's, and that's true. I also think that they are representative of an exclusive culture because a lot of the the upper class in Wakanda have been thriving. Yes. Now, I don't know if the Jabari tribe exiled themselves. Yeah. Way back when they did exile yeah. themselves. So, I don't know if there was ever an invite to come back by the later kings. I would think not, based off what Mbaku was saying later on in the movie to T'Challa. But uh, in that story in the beginning that Njobi was uh, telling to Eric, he was saying that the Jabari they decided to not be a part of that. So while you might think they're not thriving by the standards of the other tribes that make up Wakanda, they don't see it that way. They're holding true to their tradition. I mean, they seem to be doing just fine. They're fine. When we, when we go to the Jabari tribe later, everything looks fine. They're, they're fine. You man. know, but um, people are healthy, eating, thriving. They're fine. Absolutely. They just don't subscribe to what the other tribes do. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, and we will see later on in this film that there there is this whole idea of brother turning against brother and that unity doesn't always work out the way that we wish it could. Or even that tradition doesn't always hold up in every situation either. Now, with this challenge, we see a big difference from the get-go between T'Challa and his father. And it goes throughout the entire movie, this theme of the sins of the father and being different and breaking the cycle. We know that T'Chaka believes that it's hard to be a good man and to be a good king. Yes. That you have to do things you may not want to do. If it were any other king, they probably would have killed M'Baku. Yes. T'Challa let him live. He made it a point to say, do not make me kill you. Uh, your people need you. So I think that goes to show the difference between T'Chaka and T'Challa. And we go into that a little bit later when we find out about what happened with T'Chaka. And Unjobu. Yes. Now we make our way to the spirit plane. 
every Black Panther does this. They get buried and they go to the spirit plane and they see all the previous Black Panthers. In once again, cannot state it enough, just beautiful scenery, CG work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the, it, it, it was, um, they said he was going to the ancestral plane. He was able to uh, ingest the power of the heart-shaped herb. Uh, they had to bury him within that sand for him to, I guess, be transported to the ancestral plane. And I think like what you were saying, just the way the sky looked and the scenery, I think even if you didn't say that's where they were going, you would have gotten that kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah, you probably had would have had an idea. He has this interesting talk with his father, and he kneels before him. And to me, this kind of speaks of imposter syndrome, this idea of not feeling worthy or not feeling ready. Is that something that, is common in black communities in let's say the workplace or in or in academia i don't know if i would say in that exact uh likeness but there is that whole notion i think of i guess the standard that maybe us as a community or the standard that other people kind of put there for us to try to meet that might not necessarily be the black standard or the white standard or, or something along those lines. I guess maybe it's kind of hard to, I guess, maybe articulate that point because I, I don't know if I would say so much so, but then again, I can't speak to every experience. Mm-hmm. No, of course not. Yeah. I mean, you can only speak for your own, but it is similar to, to stuff that we've seen in other shows, uh, Blackish. Yes. Being one of them, right? Uh, Anthony Anderson's character, Andre, uh, brings up a lot of his angst and feelings regarding working in a majority white workplace and how he feels he always has to try harder. Oh, okay. And- All right. Maybe that's, I was maybe, maybe misunderstanding a little bit but yeah okay so i remember being told from a kid we got to work twice as hard to get half as much Mm -hmm. so whereas maybe our standard might not be those heights per se it's almost like we feel like we got to meet their standards and then go beyond because if we do the bare minimum we're looked at even less than another person that's doing the bare minimum because black but if we do even more than, then we have a chance of kind of being looked at as someone that's good or accepted. So it's something that I think a lot of kids have been told or taught from a young age in the black community, honestly. I, I saw that reminiscent in T'Challa because he says he doesn't feel that he's ready and his father takes that, oh, you're not ready to be king. Uh, But he kind of, T'Challa spent his whole life not really being the leader. He spent his life, you know, kneeling down to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's kind of his natural state. That's where he knows how to be. And now he's in a place where he has no other choice but to lead. I mean, um, I I understand what you're saying, but I don't know if... Not in a subservient position. No, no, no. I'm just saying, like, I don't know if that was the focal point because he does go on to say that it wasn't that that it was just he doesn't think he's ready to be without his dad Mm -hmm. i think that was simply just like 
I'm not ready to live life without my dad here. I don't think it was necessarily like, I don't think I'm ready to be king. It's just that I'm not ready to not have a dad anymore. It was more of a commentary on not having that father, that guidance. Yeah, I think so. I think simply just in the sense of a father-son relationship because um, his father even went on to say, haven't you been groomed to be king since you were a child? So he's got all the tools. So he's ready to be king. He's ready. It's just that I think he felt as if it wasn't his time because he felt like his dad's time was just taken from him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure he's ready to assume the mantle. Everybody else appears to be just kind of, hey, man, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Everybody everybody else is ready for him to be uh, king, including like, him. got it. <laughs> So he makes his way back to the world of the living, uh, the the non-astral plane, the physical realm, and has this moment with Nakia about opening the borders to Wakanda. And that's where she and he have some disagreements. She's gone out more as a missionary and is trying to help those who are victims who are disenfranchised and, and help them in whichever way she can, knowing full well that Wakanda has the tools to help these people. Which, this argument ends up being the whole argument for the main villain of the film. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I think border uh, <laughs> security is one of the overarching themes, I would say, yes. in this film. Because it is discussed by a couple different parties. But specifically in that scene, um, you know, T'Challa is saying, you know, come home. You know, you'd make a great queen. He goes, if you weren't so stubborn, and she's like, I'd be a great queen because I'm stubborn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's a spy. So uh, she's saying that there are so many other people that need our help. And then you have T'Challa, who's coming in with what he was being taught, saying, you know, that's not our way. That's not what Wakanda does. We protect our own. We don't get involved in other people's problems. And then Nakia goes on to say, you know, Wakanda is strong enough to help other people and protect ourselves at the same time. And then that's kind of end of the conversation. But I think you could tell by the look on his face that the child was like, huh? Yeah. And, th- and it's something that had never occurred to him before. And it's, it's so reminiscent of everything involving the U S and immigration policy right now. And that's very intentional. I believe. Oh, I think that- so too. It was social commentary. Absolutely. And, Cause it, it happens Uh, A few more times within the film, because if you're just thinking about it in a more general sense, okay, so U.S. was more isolationists, especially during most of World War II. I mean, we had allies that we were aiding, not directly, but we didn't get involved up until Pearl Harbor, right? Yes. That was the point where we're like, God damn it, now we got to get in this bitch. Now that it's my problem. um Yes, now that it affects me directly, I understand and I have to jump in. And it and takes that in the movie, too. Exactly. And I think that that's just kind of like almost holding up a mirror to the country itself, whether it's on a national level or even on a personal level. Because if you look at certain problems that might plague minority cultures, the, the, the culture that we're screaming to to be like, this is what's going on. There's a disparity. We're being marginalized. They don't get it or they don't care because it doesn't necessarily affect them directly. It isn't until we have to give an example or a situation in which someone like you's affected, not you specifically, that they're like, oh shit, 
that's not right. Now we got to do something to whereas maybe you shouldn't have to go that far. Well, of course. Uh, and that's why at the beginning I said there's a lot of people who can relate to this movie black or not. Because really, this movie, it does a great job of juggling the black experience, but also American nationalism and different problems that are affecting America. Because even before this movie came out, we had the Syrian refugee crisis. And while it was coming out and still coming out, we had this whole border wall situation. Okay, that was uh, 2018. So Trump had already been president for a year or so, right? About that. And... And we, you know, we had this whole situation where he says, you know, we bring people and we bring their problems and their problems become our problems. He had the whole America first sentiment. That's exactly it. That's what, what he had. Wakanda was doing. Yes, he had Mawa. <laughs> no, wait. Muaga. Make Wakanda great again. Muigwa. <laughs> Make Wakanda great again. But that's his whole thing. Now, really quick, this whole stubbornness aspect about yeah. Nakia. And she's not the only one. She is not the only strong woman in this film. This is probably the most feminist Marvel film that's come out so far. I would make the argument they blow any other one out of the water because that was also intentional, I think, especially by director Ryan Coogler. Mm -hmm. He wanted to show the women as being very strong in this movie because if you notice his security detail, women. Yes. When the king is threatened, who's going to kick ass for him? Okoye. General. The Dora Malaje ready just to do whatever she had to do and and it's just it was amazing to see because they're all well trained they're stoic they're all just badass and strong and dope rocking the shaved head look uh-huh koya had the tattoos on her head i wouldn't do that yeah no <laughs> she was <laughs> absolutely my favorite <laughs> is there an idea of women of color being tougher to push around i know that on a social level they are more marginalized. Yes. But I've also known that, and it's something I was discussing with my family uh, recently, uh, who are both Hispanic women. We were talking about my father and how he's only ever been with white women. And our theory is because they're the only ones that are willing to put up with his bullshit. That if he were to come to a black woman or a Hispanic woman with any of the of the you know of the crap that that he has to throw around they wouldn't fall for it is that a thing is that, not to say white women are weak <laughs> no one's saying white women are weak are they just less stubborn except white men no, I'm playing. um <laughs> but uh the thing is it's weird because it's like it's a thing but it's also not a thing because i think you have certain people within our culture that subscribe to that to where like you got a lot of brothers that are sitting there making these complaints about like you can't do this you can't do that you know (laughs) black women this and all other stuff where it's just like maybe you're just a weak dude i don't know because at the end of the day you can find a woman from any background that's a no-nonsense kind of woman right Mm -hmm, you can Uh, but that stigma is so firmly affixed to black women and it's ridiculous. So it's not a problem of stubborn black women necessarily, but more a problem of just weak men. Yeah, weak ass men. Who can't handle that. And in that moment, T'Challa, at the beginning of this movie, he's a pretty weak dude in that regard. He's stubborn. He's stuck in his ways. 
And that's his whole arc. And that's what makes his arc great is how he changes by the end of the film. Yes. But in the beginning, that's very much how he is. Yeah, because you can tell it was definitely uh, meant to be taken lightly. And the best part about it was in the moment where he was like, if you weren't so stubborn, you'd make a great queen. Nakiel really quickly is like, <laughs> I'd make a great queen because I'm stubborn. Exactly. So that was kind of one of those like, listen here. Yeah. Trust me, things would probably run a lot more smoothly if I was. Not that I want to be. Mm-hmm. Because she's got to keep it with the whole, I'm a spy. I don't want to be permanently associated with one or the other. She has a very interesting duality with her, too. But that's something we can get into a little later. And we see later on that Nakia has this moment where she has to wear the Dora Milaje armor. And she doesn't even want to do that. No. Like she has a, she actually has a huge problem with the way Wakanda has been operating. Most definitely, because she she's definitely at the forefront of the whole "we can do more," or the fact that she doesn't want to be tied down to being loyal to a specific person. She says that she loves her country, but she is not going to be, I guess, kind of bogged down by all the stuff that comes with being tied to the throne or being loyal to the throne unlike okoye Mm -hmm. okoye she's general she is loyal to the throne uh she even makes it a point to say in a dispute with uh nakia that she is loyal to the throne no matter who sits upon it and that's loyalty to a fault and interestingly enough i think okoye exhibits this blind nationalism yeah that is almost to the detriment of herself and those around her and and i think that's another moment to where you kind of have the mirror being placed back up in front of your face because she speaks of other countries or americans the way americans tend to speak of people from other countries mm-hmm. scoffs like they're not cultured or they're a little bit like eh, other americans. countries are primitive and they are and they are superior so down to the way they talk, down to the weapons that they use. She scoffed at the notion of them using guns, Americans and their guns. So it's just like I think Okoye was definitely that same blind nationalism that you get from people in this country, you know, America, but just <laughs> through a different lens. And I thought it was done so well because it was subtle at first. And then you kind of see the jabs come in every now and again. And it was just very interesting to see it from that perspective because, you know, <laughs> a, you know, you putting uh, a gift in a box, uh, you're going to change someone's perception of that gift if you put it in different wrapping paper, even if it's still the same thing. Absolutely, yeah. You put a toaster in a plastic bag and someone's going to be like, oh, this is going to be shitty. Or you could put it in a nice bag with a bow on top. It's still a toaster, but it looks different. Yeah, and uh, at least she doesn't call any of the other countries shithole countries. There's that. <laughs> could, Don't get me wrong, been worse. she's got yeah. one up on, you know, Americans yeah. any day of the week, but yeah. they still exhibit that same national. No, absolutely. And that that dichotomy represents a lot of what Americans are feeling now, that you have those Americans who are loyal to their country regardless of how it's being run, Yes, and they think that they love their country so much. But you have the other ones, myself included, who 
are, for lack of a better word, disgusted with the way that America is now because we know it can be better. Because we love our country and don't want it to be that country that other people are like, oh, that place with the clown as the leader, that place that, <laughs> you know, uh, separating family is that place that, you know, has more gun deaths per day than this place. You know, like, hey, I mean, it's it's I used to wonder when I was a kid why other countries seem to hate America so much as I've gotten older and met people from different parts of the world and stepped outside of, you know, I'm from America. Connoisseur, but not too particularly enamored with the country. Yeah. And the the interesting thing is that plays back into this as well because the border tribe is all about keeping other people out, but they have no problem stepping into other countries. He even tells T'Challa, he's like, I'll go into another country for you. I'll, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll wage war. I'll fight. I'll do this. Most and that's definitely. exactly what America is. That's our policy. Pretty much. It, it was very interesting with that conversation T'Challa had with Wakabi. And he said, you know, uh, we don't want other countries' problems. And then he goes on to say, but if you were to tell me and my men to go to this other country, you know, on your behalf and do this, I'd have no problem with that. And that within itself is a problem right there. That's just like, <laughs> absolutely. Let's go over here and fuck some shit up. But I know like, how to fix your problems they better. Come over here. It's a problem. Yes. And this also kind of reminds me of Latin America issues. Like right now, we have people in Venezuela continuing a tradition of uh, sticking our nose in other governments' businesses and destabilizing other countries. And then when those countries become so unlivable that they decide to come here, we're like, whoa, whoa, stay in your own country. What happened? <laughs> and I think that that is what Wakabi's sentiment is. You know, we'll go do our own thing, but don't come and infringe on us. So we make our way to Korea in this next part. <laughs> they leave. <laughs> going international, folks. Yeah, yeah. They So they leave Wakanda. They go to Korea because, you know, they want to get this. They want to get Claw. Yes, because they had a meeting with the elders of the council. And the first thing T'Challa wanted to do was get Claw. He said that was probably one of his dad's biggest regrets. Been trying to catch this man for 30 years. He's a terrorist who's been in and out of Wakanda. And He's the only person, the only outsider, foreigner to come into Wakanda and leave alive. So I think this will kind of go into, again, the, the difference between T'Challa and T'Chaka or just the comparisons between the two because the first thing he wanted to do was something his dad couldn't. Now, if it was to kind of avenge his father or to carry on his father's will... That's what I'm thinking, but that was the move. And while one of the elders, who in hindsight, I think, had the right idea, or when she went on to say, Wakanda doesn't need a warrior right now, we need a king. Mm -hmm. But Okoye jumps in and goes, you know what? We should do this. We need to get this done. You have Wakabi, who has a very personal connection to Claw's capture. And uh, he was asking T'Challa if he could come with them so that they could fight together because Wakabi uh, lost his parents in an attack that was caused by Claw. Okay. So 
ultimately, Wakabi was asked to stay there because T'Challa said, I need you to protect the border. And then that conversation ended with Wakabi saying, either you kill him or you bring him back here so he can stand trial. So what I wanted to ask you was, do you think that that was the right move to make? On whose part? On, let's say, T'Challa's part. Because he's the king, so ultimately what he decides he can carry out, right? Uh, After watching it this most recent time, I'm thinking, I'm like, wait a minute. They could have either not gone after Claw, or if they still went with the plan of going after him, they could have sent somebody else. They could have sent Wakabi, honestly. And I think if they would have sent Wakabi, uh, things may not have panned out the way they did, or they still could have, but it wouldn't have been anything that could have been blamed on T'Challa. I'm glad that T'Challa did go. I don't think that there is 100% right or a 100% wrong call to make here because as a king, it would have been practical for him to stay in his country and send other people to go. Send Wakabi? Hell no. You shouldn't send him because A, like T'Challa said, you should be on the border guarding it, but B, he has a personal vendetta against Claw. And we see that when they finally catch up to Claw, T'Challa's ready to murder him in front of the entire world. Everyone has their cell phones out. Mm-hmm. He's at that point, you get mercy, oh mercy, King, because he's playing that yeah. card against him. That's very good point that you bring up. Yeah, so is that how you want to represent your country? Good thing it was him that went, because he is the king of Wakanda. and It's very true, because if Wakabi would have went and he would have captured him, he probably would have killed him. W- Wakabi would have killed him right on then site. and there. No, Absolutely. No questions asked. And that would have been an international uh, issue right then and there. And yeah. That could have definitely put a lot of spotlight on Wakanda that it didn't need. Absolutely. Now, but I do think that something had to be done about this vibranium sale that was happening. I agree. You know, uh, and also if you sent Wakabi, let's say you just kept the entire crew. You kept Nakia, you kept Wakabi, you uh, you kept Okoye, you have uh, Shuri in the lab waiting to drive a cool car. (laughs) They run into Everett Ross from the CIA. None of those people are diplomats. That's true. And none of them would have had the tact that T'Challa had to deal with Ross. That's a good point. And I, it's weird because I was thinking if they would have had Wakabi go, right? So let's say T'Challa goes and um, for argument's sake, let's say you replace Okoye. So you got T'Challa, Wakabi, and Nakia, right? So all the roles could have still been the same, essentially. Wakabi could have still ended up fighting the same men that Okoye did. And it could have either ended with Wakabi killing Claw. Yes. Or it could have ended with Wakabi trying to get Claw but failing in his attempt to. So then at least at that point, if he failed to do it because of his inability to just get the job done, who could he blame for him not being brought back to face trial? That's true. But then I think that could have still sown seeds of discord and he could have still ended up doing what he did, but maybe for different reasons. Now, during this whole Korea scene, we have this awesome moment where Okoye comes in in disguise and she's wearing this wig. (laughs) Works on a couple of levels. One, she has to wear this insane wig for The Walking Dead all the time. She has that that whole dread setup in order to play Michonne. 
But two, this isn't a, a, a wig with dreadlocks. It's a wig that's made to mimic a white person's hair. It has that kind of... It, it's a wig that you have seen black women wear to kind of fit that Eurocentric hair look. Like, it doesn't look coarse or wavy. Well, curly, I should say. Yeah. It does have that look to it, and she hates it. Absolutely hates it. And she couldn't wait to take that thing off. Yes. I, I thought that was a great nod to just maybe maybe it wasn't that deep. Maybe it's just because she's so used to being bald that any hair on her head would have been annoying. But I thought maybe if you're looking at it a certain way, it's a great nod to just being like, you don't have to subscribe to those standards of what looks good. She's beautiful without it. Right? Yeah. Well, I think it was super on purpose that because there is a huge matter surrounding the politics of black hair. That it's not professional. Yes. Like there have been people that haven't been hired because they had dreads. And I'm like, wait, are you kidding me? That uh, wrestler in high school who had to have his had dreads, to have cut. dreads cut. And then, of course, you find out the coach that made him cut him and he, he was found to have said the N-word. And, and it's like, <laughs> Oh, really? maybe he was a racist? What? It's like, you're, <laughs> really? Because, I mean, I don't know how dreads were going to help him in a wrestling match. It's not like they were long enough to wrap around the dude's neck and choke him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he had mastered that technique, but he wasn't <laughs> going to use it in the wrestling. Yeah, it was Master a whole thing. thousand of four holds. It, of course. <laughs> The, the dreadlock. Yes, the dreadlock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that's good. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there are a lot of politics surrounding black hair, and I've experienced it myself. As you know, I'm mixed, and I, when my hair grows out, it becomes an afro. Oh, it's a fro, baby. It's an afro. And just I still have a, my driver license has that afro picture on it, and when I put that uh, when I give that to bouncers at bars and everything, and they're like, you know, like uh, tough black dudes who are bouncers, they'll see it and they'll be like, nice. Like, it's an awesome <laughs> validation. It's this it's this good sense of, like, common ground. You got a black card. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, it, it was like, you know, like a PBA card. It expired after a year. But in that year, mm, you were good. There you go. I remember you grew that out, and you just amassed uh more black friends in that period of time <laughs> and then as soon as you shaved it whoa man yeah hey i don't know what you're into yeah <laughs> you're not racist right <laughs> yeah things got things got very different there uh but there there is whole this idea of just trying to destigmatize uh black authenticity because uh and movements saying that black is beautiful because it is and people that wear wristbands like yourself that say i heart being black yeah, oddly enough, um, this might be going off a little bit, but uh, I had a coworker that uh, noticed this, and she like works up at the front desk. I work in an accounting firm, so uh, very professional environment. So she sees this band, because it was like a dress-down day, because we were moving some shit. Mm -hmm. And she goes, oh, what's that band say? And I'm like, it says, I love being black. And then her face kind of like went from like slightly puzzled and like, does that have anything to do with the Black Lives Matter? And my face puzzled uh, back. I'm just kind of like, no, it predates that. But it's just a simple, you know, I love being black. And she's like, okay. <laughs> so now I had two trans thoughts going. First one is like, bitch, so what if it was? But then at the same time, it's also like, you're some random blonde woman from garden city who 
can probably count on one hand the number of black people she's been around in her life. Mm. Maybe not, but still. Who knows? Uh, I can't expect everybody to know about the I love being black thing. Yeah. So, but still, it was annoying. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is – that's just the thing, and that's, like, where the weave comes from and mm. where different colored – what extensions even though everybody does it yeah and where different color uh contacts come from and everything like and where bleaching skin comes from oh yeah that is running rampant in the caribbean it's a huge wow really yeah surprisingly enough i thought maybe parts of africa but i think it does but like i think parts of jamaica that's becoming a thing where people are bleaching and it's fucking ridiculous because it's like it doesn't look like, it's not like they go from looking my complexion to looking like Kenny's complexion. They just kind of look like maybe they fell in a large container of powder. Uh, to me, at least. Uh, it's like like you were trying to bake a cake and you took the flour out. You dropped the whole fucking bag and just <laughs> it's all on you. I That's just my interpretation of it. But So it looks that bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Koye has this wig. And the first thing she does when she gets the chance to take it off is uses it as a weapon, throws it in this guy's <laughs> face to blind him, and and you know all hell breaks loose, and we finally get to see what this suit can do. Shuri yeah. has engineered the suit that does what? It is bulletproof for one, but it also absorbs the kinetic energy of whatever it's being hit with, and it redistributes it. So it's almost like. Uh, once it absorbs enough kinetic energy, you can just kind of cause like a shock wave that like just blows back and, you know, can knock people out, staggers people. It's pretty fucking dope. It is. And I actually hadn't thought about this, but a podcast I was listening to, I'm going to have to do a few shout outs when I release this episode called uh, the Now Playing Movie Review Podcast. They were reviewing it and there are three or four white guys who review a bunch of movies. And one of the aspects they spoke about was how this suit is representative of the black experience itself. Taking a bunch of bad things, taking a bunch of punishment, and then using it as your strength. Yeah. Using it to overcome. This goes right to the slavery movies and the civil rights movies. You got (laughs) to take all that oppression. Gather all that up, and you got to redistribute that so you can make something out of it, right? Yes. So it's like you're wearing all of your bad things on you. Trauma. And and it's funny because while I don't quote this man often, I believe Charlemagne the God, host on The Breakfast Club, he said that um, black people are in the business of selling trauma. Amen to that. Absolutely. And and it's just – when I heard it, I'm like, damn, he makes a really good point. I never thought of that either. Because but... if you think about it this way, when it comes to let's take rappers, right? Of course. Uh, the ones that, uh, like KRS-One, Rakim, if you take Ice Cube, NWA especially, uh, Biggie, Tupac, if you take um, Kendrick, if you take Cole, like a lot of these artists, the ones that are like telling you stories, Nas, right? They're selling you trauma. On a sense, not like intentionally, but they're telling you stories about the experiences they've had growing up where they grew up, where they grew up. So it's always like, you know, I'm a project baby. or I grew up in the hood or we didn't have this. We didn't have that. And it's like it's 
the people that live that, there's relatability there. We relate to one another's trauma. And that's why I think they get people to rock with them the way they do. And then you have those audiences who are simply on the outside looking in. And to them, it's entertainment. Oh, yeah. And those, I think it's a big difference between the, both of us growing up is that I grew up in a neighborhood and in a community where they loved that music because it represented something they weren't familiar with. At so, all. It, yeah, so it was entertainment. Yeah. Uh, you know, to see, you know, I remember there's one kid who, oh my God, uh, I'm embarrassed for him. Uh, but, you know, Italian kid, white Italian kid, when middle school hit and he just started listening to a bunch of rap music, not, you know, you know, the fitted cap and the baggy clothes, the do rag too. Really? Do rag with the hat on, with the baggy clothes. Did he even know what a do rag was for? He knew it went on under the hat. I could tell you that much. Jesus Christ. But I don't know. You didn't need it. Sweet black baby Jesus. <laughs> I've, I've seen it before, too, to where it's like you look at that one random white kid that's wearing a do-rag, and it's like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Yeah. That's like if I put gel in my hair. It doesn't make fucking sense. Uh, it just seems so uncomfortable. It doesn't. Like, <laughs> <laughs> your hair ain't nap enough for that shit. Like, come on, There dude. you go. It, 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 but it's crazy, though. But then you have the same argument being made to where it's like you want to immerse yourself in the culture without knowing the history. Or you can be so entertained by rap music, but you can't be entertained about a movie that's predominantly black casted. Yeah. Interesting. It is wild how, how people don't make the connection. There's this cognitive dissonance to it. Oh, yeah. Some parallels being drawn. Another thing, did we ever see Killmonger's costume do the same thing? Killmonger's suit? Uh, his uh, When he becomes Black Panther? Yes, it does the same thing. But it doesn't. On a, on a, on a metaphorical level, T'Challa's, Ooh. right? Let's do this. Let's go in. All right, all right, all right. So T'Challa's suit is all about taking that punishment and and expelling it to to help and expelling it as a strength. I think Killmonger and his whole idea of a character is about taking that trauma and just exploding with it. He doesn't know where or how to send it out in a in a in a far be it for me to judge him, but at least the way the movie depicts him, he doesn't know how to send it out in a positive way. Okay. So the way he does, he's he's made to be the villain because he just can't take the shit anymore and needs to do something about it. So if we're going to look at this on a more metaphorical level. Let's do it. Okay. So we're going to say while their suits do the same thing, the purpose is different. Gotcha. Because if you if we want to just throw it into that more, oddly enough, um, well, it's not really odd, but <laughs> a lot of black people did not look at Killmonger as a villain. They I don't think I did either. with him. <laughs> yeah. And – for me, watching it the first time, I only looked at him as a villain simply because he was trying to kill T'Challa. To me, that was the only villainous aspect he had. Um, as far as what he wanted to do, albeit maybe not the best way, his thought process, I didn't have an issue with per se, right? Uh, while, because honestly, if you think about it, he was just going to follow in the footsteps of his dad anyway. Unjobu 
was saying the same thing to T'Chaka. He was. That's how he was raised. He said they all their leaders have been assassinated. They are, you know, without the power to rise up against their oppressors. But if we can help them, because he initially says these people, but then I think he kind of ends up looking at them as our people, their people. Yeah. And he was saying if we give them the power to, they can rise up and overthrow these oppressors. Uh, Killmonger was trying to do the same thing, just in a more radical fashion. Yes. And I, w- I wanted to wait until a little bit later, but I guess we'll get to this now, right? While we're, while we're got, while we got yeah, this momentum well, we got going. going. So we do find out later in the film that Killmonger has been trying to make it back into Wakanda because that's where his father was from. Yes. His father was Njobu, Prince Unjobu, Prince Unjobu, who was the brother of T'Chaka. He and T'Challa are both cousins. And if you're someone who has not watched this film yet, I'm confusing the shit out of you <laughs> with with all the names and everything. But basically, Killmonger's father was sent to Oakland. <laughs> you said you said what? Oakland. He was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was sent to the the mean streets of Oakland uh, as on a, a spy. war dog assignment. Okay. And it's interesting the connection that you get because when Everett was describing Killmonger, he said he has a war dog tattoo. And I thought that was very interesting how they mentioned the tattoo and that he's a war dog, seeing how that's what his dad was also. His dad was on an assignment as a spy. Ends up, you know, kind of adopting the lifestyle because you see him wearing what they wear in Oakland. Uh, He fell in love with an American woman, had Eric. So um, come to find out, Zuri, James... Yeah. Was also sent on an assignment. That's right. But uh he was supposed to spy on Ujobu. Yes. And uh so, you know, obviously he's adopted the culture. Uh there's an NWA poster in the yep. in the room, right? Where we first get introduced to him. So this was nineteen ninety two. That that was the you know, the big the big part of it. So all all of this is coming together. None of this is happening in a vacuum, right? No. You have his nationalism from Wakanda, you have his experience of being a black man in America now, seeing what black people put up with. He says that the people are over incarcerated, over policed, their leaders are shot. I'm getting chills just talking about it. You know, their their leaders are killed, which we find out later. Killmonger says, you know, every time black people tried to start revolutions in America, they were shut down. Okay, when you think about uh Dr. Huey P. Newton, who was assassinated, mm-hmm. right? You think Malcolm X was assassinated. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Unjobu is in the thick of all of this, and he wants to use vibranium, use Wakandan technology to be able to help these people, give them the means to fight back. His brother, King T'Chaka, comes to squash this, and it ends up with him killing his own brother. Yes. And so this leaves... Eric Killmonger, a child, a child to grow up without a father. This is not uncommon. It's not uncommon at all. Whether it's due to them being killed or being incarcerated. And the interesting thing is um, you would think, uh, given the fact that granted what Njobu did was technically treason. It was treason. Yeah. So, uh, in the eyes of Wakanda, what he did was wrong. So, 
and I think this kind of ties into the whole thing about tradition not always uh, shining through in certain situations because uh, a man felt as if he was forced to murder his brother for the sake of traditions and Wakanda, where I'm sure he could have found another way. I mean, maybe, but you know who else uh, committed treason against the United States? Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, both people who were... Uh, well, Chelsea Manning was put in prison, and her sentence luckily was commuted. Edward Snowden, I believe, is still a fugitive from the United States. They both exposed war crimes that the United States committed, yeah. and so that makes them that makes them criminals on paper. But Unjobu, just trying to trying to help people out in the eyes of Wakanda, yes, he is a war criminal. I mean, but regardless, Eric still did pretty well for himself mm-hmm. all right he went to mit right yeah he uh didn't he graduate mit at like 19 something like that. all right became a successful had a, a, an incredibly um decorated military career oh yeah went on several tours yeah so despite growing up without a father in the mean streets of oakland he actually did really well for himself. He did. I mean, <laughs> shit about his mom, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, so he's a he's a genius. He's uh, you know deadly on an emotional, mental, physical level. Everything. Yeah. I mean, but you also, it's interesting with the suit. Also, with your saying that he uh, kind of explodes with all that trauma because he physically wears his trauma. Because he's got all those marks all over his body, which represent kills. And granted, we don't see his entire body, but his whole torso, the abdominals up, is covered in these marks that he did to himself to represent kills. Now, I, I think that on a psychological level, obviously he's damaged. He's He's got some issues because I don't know anybody who's keeping count of their kills on their body. There's calculators and paper for that. It is kind of a, it is kind of a, a primitive thing to do because there are cultures that do that, and there are cultures that scar themselves for completely different reasons. Mm-hmm. I think that he is aware of the the preciousness of life. Maybe, maybe I'm looking into it. This, he doesn't say this in the film, but he he does say I've killed brothers and sisters on on this very continent. Okay, yeah. he's been sent to missions in Africa and has killed people, all knowing that it was for a cause. And he keeps those as reminders. But that makes me wonder, though, how many of those people, uh, how many of those marks are representative of brothers and sisters he had to kill on that continent? Because this most recent time watching it, I'm looking at it, I'm like, doesn't that kind of poke a hole in your whole, you know, ideal? Because you're you're wanting to use the weapons from Wakanda to mobilize black people and ultimately save them, in a sense, or help them save themselves. How are you doing that by taking the life of those people also? Like, I think it's different, like, if he's like, you know what? I've had to fight a lot of brothers and sisters from this continent, but I've never taken a life from them. Mm. I think that would be, I think that would have been a little different. Yeah, well, I mean, it goes into what his father was willing to do, which he worked directly with Claw, right, in order yeah. to get this vibranium, and so he was willing to do that, and that's that's really the key difference between him and T'Challa, is that T'Challa is 
willing to break that cycle. Yeah. He's willing to to admit that the way he was raised might not have been correct. But it did take some outside stimulus to kind of get him to that realization. Absolutely. Because I think what this movie also um, does a great job of doing is showing how hard it is to, A, break the cycle, B, showing someone's self-realization that there's something that does need to change, and then even with Killmonger, when it was too late, him at least kind of coming to terms with it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, a bad habit is hard to break, no matter what it is. Um, But I, I think with the two of them specifically, there are two sides of the same coin. Their biggest difference to me is um, environment and circumstances. I think T'Challa could have easily been Eric and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Because let's say Unjobu was Black Panther and he was in Wakanda and T'Chaka was on the war dog assignment. That could have easily been T'Challa who ended up becoming Terrence. And joining the military, graduating from MIT, doing all that other stuff, going on these assignments, destroying foreign uh, countries from the government, and doing all the things that Killmonger did. I I think that that was intentional, and it was meant to show how these differences in their lives caused them to be two completely different people when they came from the same place, essentially. We're going to put a pin in this episode for now, because when we get to talking, we really get to talking. Please return next week to listen to part two of our Black Panther episode. If you want to rate and review us so others can enjoy, find us on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Feel free to reach out to us via email at politipopcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at politipoppod, or on Instagram at politipoppodcast. Find our show notes and sources at politipoppodcast.wordpress.com, and special thanks to you for taking time out of your quarantine to listen, to Josh for being on this episode, and to Antonia Little for logo design. Tune in next week for part two, and in the meantime, whatever you're watching, reading, or listening to, keep thinking, keep learning, and read between the lines. There you go. Now, you're 84%, you said. that goes 86. 86. Excuse my white self. Uh, <laughs> my lily white devil. <laughs> you take your damn white privilege. <laughs> white, non-rounding ass. Oh, my God. Um, how's Angela Davis doing? Is she still alive? I keep that part out. I should know that. <laughs> What's Angela Davis up to? <laughs> what should be doing these days? Girl, where you at?